You're listening to Amplify Arts Alternate Currents interview series. Alternate Currents opens space for conversation, discussion, and action around national and international issues in the arts that have a profound impact at the local level. This interview series is just one part of the Alternate Currents blog, a dedicated online resource linking readers to topical articles, interviews, and critical writing that shine a spotlight on artist-led policy platforms, cross-sector partnerships, and artist-driven community change. Visit often and join the conversation at amplifyarts.org backslash alternate currents. Hello, thanks so much for listening. Um, my name is Annika Johnson. I'm the Associate Curator of Native American Art at Joslin Art Museum. Um, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Sunshine Bear, who's the director of the Angel Decora Museum and Research Center in Winnebago, Nebraska. Uh, we're gonna have a pretty wide ranging conversation. I'm really looking forward to this sunshine. Um, thanks so much to Amplify Arts and to Peter for inviting us to have this discussion. So let's kick it off. Welcome, Sunshine. I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, first of all, thank you guys for asking me to do this, and I really appreciate it. Um, so my name is Sunshine Thomas Bear. I am a member of the Bear Clan of the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska. I was adopted by Charles Bear, um, who is a member of the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska, and Eva Bear, um, whose maiden name is Bowman. And she's a member of the Stockbridge Muncie Band of the Mohicans. My biological parents are Wilbur Wolf and Louise Thomas, and their parents' names are Dave Cleveland and Cynthia Wolf Baker and Bernard Thomas and Irma Rose Kelsey. I am a proud mother, and um, I would say my number one job is as a grandmother. Um, I have one grandson, his name's Malcolm. Um, my educational experience is I have an associate's degree of science in business from Little Priest Tribal College, a bachelor's degree in education with an emphasis in ESL from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I just finished another associate's degree in Native American Studies at Little Priest Tribal College. Um, I just graduated this past spring. Um, I've also been looking into uh, Native American law. Um, so I'm hoping to get my foot in there, um, which is very uh, relevant to my job, something that I need. Um, so before coming here in the position that I'm at right now, <clears throat> I was a special education teacher at the Winnebago Public School, and it was absolutely my dream job. I left because I couldn't make ends meet living off of the pay as a teacher, um, you know, with all my kids and um, everything. It just... I just couldn't do it. I couldn't make ends meet. Um, I left the school and my students, which are my kids, I always think of them as my kids. I still watch them grow up. And then I went to the Ho-Chunk Renaissance program, um, which I am also very passionate about, which is language revitalization within our tribe as the instruction coordinator um, and teaching language within our schools. Um, as you know, or may know, our language is at an emergency state with only five fluent speakers in our community. Um, it's like a constant race against the clock with our language and culture because many of our language and knowledge holders are all elders, um, you know, and one day they're not gonna be with us. So 
you know, we have to get as much information from them as we can before that time comes. We also fight the colonization, you know, of our own minds. And some of our um, people, you know, struggle to see the importance of our culture and language and how that fits into their lives now, you know, now that we're colonized. Um, And then I started here at my current position, which is a long title. I'm the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, the Cultural Preservation Director, and the Angel Decora Museum Director for for the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska as of March 2020. It's basically the same race from a different angle. Um, I still work closely with Ho-Chunk Renaissance and the school. I try to use my current position to continue my work towards preservation of our language and culture and also finding and bringing our cultural items home to the museum. Also returning our ancestors and funerary objects whose journeys were disrupted when they were taken from their places of burial. Um, protecting the lands that we currently reside on or have resided on and our water in those areas as well. Along with this, I also work on cultural preservation and reintroducing cultural activities and arts to our people or teaching, learning and teaching what our elders know and sharing that with others. Um, A lot of our classes focus on women, but I really work hard to find classes that our male relatives can benefit from as well and teach. And as a woman, uh, mother and a grandmother, anything I learn um, from my elders or, you know, anyone, I then learn and take home to my family and teach them. So to me, that is how we are going to save our culture, you know, our language and our people through our children. They're the most important piece in saving who we are or who we were, you know, trying to revitalize that. Without our language and culture, we're no longer a people. Um, To me, basically, we're what, without any of that, we're what the colonizers aimed for us to be, which is exterminated. We're no longer who we were. So Mm -hmm. that's what I do. You've been on a long journey and you wear many hats. Um, you're doing so much important work. And I, I think it's important to maybe move a little further back in time. I, I would love to hear more about the history of the Ho-Chunk people and how they came to be in Nebraska um, and, and that history of, of people coming from the Minnesota, Wisconsin area. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I mean, like, first off, so I would like to say, like, I'm only a student as well. You know, I, I'm going to be a student for the rest of my life in our history and our culture and our language. Um, there's so much to know and learn. Um, I just feel like at my age, you know, and I know I'm not super old. I feel old, but, you know, I, I feel like I am way behind the time. Like I should have started learning as soon as I was born, you know, to be able to learn even half of what I need to know to help my people. So, um, you know, what I know is what I've been told, you know, through research and I have an elder, Carolyn Fiscus, that I really turn to for answers. Um, And she helps me with a lot of the things that I'm doing. 
Um, so as I begin this timeline, I guess there's an important part of the issue that started before the removals. There was an introduction to the tribes who came into contact with settlers. For our tribe, it was fur trading with the French. Um, this was our people's introduction to consumerism. And as we all know, you know, we, we overbuy, you know, we over everything, you know, because to make money and that type of thing. Um, and that was our introduction. Um, our people and other tribes before this only took <clears throat> what was needed um, from the earth. And this was the start to me of our decline into colonization. And as we all know from first contact came disease. Diseases our people had no immunity to, um, killing thousands if not millions of tribal nations, peoples, um, exterminating whole tribes. Um, and then shortly after 1816, the fur trade kind of met its own decline as well. Our original homeland spread all the way to the Mississippi River from the Ohio River and west of Lake Superior. So that's basically Wisconsin, Illinois, um, up toward Canada. Um, and then throughout all this, as we all know, um, the new Americans, because this was a very new America, um, you know, after the Revolutionary War, which was, I believe, 1812. Um, more land, more resources, whatever was found in our land, you know, was taken, we were moved again and again, and not just our tribe, you know, many tribes, all tribes. <clears throat> so in 1816, the new U.S. and settlers came along and began to take our land. Um, they didn't move us out of our area completely, the area that I had just mentioned, um, but they narrowed our homelands in Wisconsin and Illinois. The 1816 treaty says Ho-Chunk would impose on settlers. So this began the breaking up of our nation. Settlers overhunted our game and fishing. Also during this time, lead miners came in because they found lead in Wisconsin and the Illinois area. <clears throat> in 1825 was the establishment of tribal territories. 1829, in this treaty, all of Northern Illinois and two-thirds of Wisconsin is taken in this treaty, which had given us even smaller territory. They were to stay away from, they were to stay from Rock River and Sugar River for 30 years, which was the concession of the treaty. But as we all know and are all aware, the government did not uphold to their concessions and things they agreed upon in treaties. Each new, each new treaty that we signed stated that it made null and void the previous treaty. So that was always their wording. Um, and for us, if you, you know, we're, we're clans, you know, we have 12 clans and, you know, there was a, a lot of us in the beginning. And so each clan had their own area. So we were spread out through these lands. You know, we weren't all together like we are right now. Um, so then if we go back to around this treaty time, they, the government, they would grab not necessarily leaders, they called them bread chiefs. They, um, kept them hostage in Washington, D.C. This was around 1829 until they would sign treaties. Um, our 
bread chiefs, and I don't necessarily like that word, but that's what they were called. Um, they asked for two years to move um, from this land that we just had, this, this smaller land in 1829. Um, they had asked for two years to move after signing. They were unaware that it had stated in there only six months. So when they got back home, of course, you know, the leaders and um, their clan leaders, which told, who told them not to sign anything, but they did because they wouldn't be freed. They, they would have been killed if they didn't sign. Um, they were basically, you know, people were upset at each other, you know, and this kind of starts our decline in our clan system and families as well, you know, because we're fighting amongst each other. And then shortly after them arriving home, troops arrived to ensure that they moved. They had thought they had two years, right? They only had months to move. Um, in 1832, we lost more land in Illinois and Wisconsin, south and east of the Fox River, uh, moving them to the neutral ground, ground or white clans area, um, pushing all of us together in what is now like Iowa and Minnesota, the states now. <clears throat> um, you know, and like I said, it was unnatural for our people and clans to all be in this little area together. Um, with this treaty, we were supposed to get a sawmill, a school, and other things, but of course that didn't happen. And during this time in 1832, um, things with Blackhawk, um, a SOC member, he, um, you know, was retaliating against the government and stuff, so things started to get heated during this time, so you know, eventually things do come to a, a point um, as we go through this timeline. The, the, governments, the government began playing tribes against each other. Um, although there were, you know, rifts between tribes, you know, over territories and stuff, you know, before first contact, there wasn't anything, nothing compared to how the government turned us all against each other. Um, telling one tribe one thing and another tribe something else, you know, all to get us fighting, making us fight against each other, <clears throat> which is still very evident in our lives today and how our people treat each other. Um, there's a term that I had heard um, over and over, which has turned into this lateral bullying and oppression that our people face and do to each other. So in 1837, again, all stipulations of previous treaties were null and void. We were pushed to the west side of the Mississippi into soon would be the Iowa Territory. The treaty basically lessened the neutral ground area. We weren't here very long. We weren't there in that, that area very long, maybe about six years at most. And then during this time, Blackhawk, um, was raiding into Minnesota areas. And then in 1855, at this time, our tribe was moved to Long Prairie. Um, that land wasn't good. Um, and we were near a tribe that, you know, we didn't necessarily get along with historically. So, you know, it was kind of tough for us there. And it was a completely different environment than what we were used to. You know, if you go up to Wisconsin and Illinois, it's hilly, trees, you know, that type of thing, you know, and when you go to these other areas, it's nothing what we were used to. The game isn't what it was used to um, and how to feed ourselves and everything, you know, because we lived off the land. 
you know, we lived off of what was given. And, um, you know, it's not like today where you can go to a store and just buy what you need. You know, we went out and hunted and picked and that type of thing. In 1857, the tribe moved to Blue Earth. The government didn't bring the supplies and rations that they were supposed to bring. So they had to sell part of Blue Earth to survive, which is in Minnesota. Um, in 1859, tribal leadership ceded land in Blue Earth, which is basically sold um, sold the land there um, to help us survive um, for seeds, you know, rations, food, whatever, you know, to because our people are dying, you know, our people are dying because the government isn't bringing the rations and stuff that is promised in these multiple multiple treaties. Um, and then in 1863, as a lot of people are aware, um, due to the Dakota uprising, um, which was in 1862, where 38 of our Dakota relatives were hanged, um, then in 1863, they forced marched, marched our tribe to Fort Snelling. Um, they were put on river boats and on these boats, many of our people got sick from the various diseases that we had no immunity to, you know, like malaria and, you know, smallpox, those types of things, you know, imagine putting a ton of people on one little boat, you know, that you're just going to continue to be sick. And I'm guessing the boats were dirty and, you know, there wasn't no food on them, you know, that type of thing. <sighs> Once we were put on the boats, we were sent down the Mississippi and up the Missouri River to Crow Creek, South Dakota. And all of this was during the winter months. So something that I had found when I was doing some research and um, uh, it was something that I wanted to read here. And this was in the Daily Republican in Winona, Minnesota, their newspaper in 1863. So it states that the reward for dead Indians has been increased to $200 for every redskin sent to purgatory. The sum is more than all the dead bodies of all the Indians east of the river are, are worth. So, you know, we were not only battling the government, we were also battling, you know, settlers. They just basically put bounties on us, you know, at will, whenever they wanted to. Um, so back to our, you know, our um, boat ride, um, which is the, the river boats. I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, some of our scouts jumped off the boat to talk to some of our Omaha relatives to try to find land and a place for our people. We knew that where we were going, we were basically being sent to our death, which was Crow Creek. Um, and then as expected, you know, Crow Creek in the winter, horrible conditions. I don't know if you've ever been there, that's in South Dakota. It's a very desolate land, you know, you can't farm the, the ground, there's no, not really too many trees, you know, it's just like, and then it's winter, so imagine that, and we don't have the resources we have today, so, you know, we just, there was no rations, there was no food, um, it was freezing cold, and many of our people didn't survive. Um, some stories I've heard of our people, you know, they tried to make soup out of out of bark, you know, just boiling the bark. Um, mothers feeding their babies corn out of horse droppings, you know, like just getting it out of the horse droppings and chewing it and trying to feed their babies for them to survive. Um, and there's, you know, multiple stories um, and death, 
you know, when we began this walk um, and what our people call it is the walk of death throughout these near 50 years. Um, then, you know, to save our people, um, Chief Little Hill and Little Priest, um, we then all escaped. Um, we escaped to the land that, you know, where we, re we reside at today. Um, and for the Omaha relatives, you know, we, we, um, they agreed to it to, for us to help protect them um, as a buffer to other tribes and them. Um, and, you know, we're a warrior society. So, you know, that's what we, we did, you know, we, we were warriors and, you know, we have a very proud history, you know, besides all this stuff, you know, but I think in the end, you know, this is something to be proud of too, because here we still are, you know, um, and then what I've heard of our escape is that we used dugout canoes and followed the creek until it got to the Missouri River. And then we followed it down to, you know, like I said, where we are now. Um, I was told that when they got here, um, there was no babies and no old people left. Um, there was only a few hundred of us um, that survived. And those people who passed away, you know, that we could bring with us, we just pulled along behind our canoes. Um, and this was in winter time. So imagine a large tribe of 40,000 plus people being reduced to a few hundred in less than 50 years. Um, and then the trauma, the historical trauma and everything that goes with that. Um, you know, and then 1865, that treaty allowed us to stay where we are now in Nebraska. Um, the government gave us money um, to buy half of the Omaha reservation. And then that's where we are today. Within all of this, there's so much other things going on for our people, um, like I talked about, you know, the death and the trauma and also the resilience, you know, we didn't stop. We kept going, we kept trying to survive. Um, there was, of course, tribal members who would run back to Wisconsin, which, um, and hide out in our homelands, which now you see two tribes because the, there's the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska and also the Ho-Chunk Nation. And so we are two tribes, but we were actually one. But within that also, you know, has caused a divide between our people. But that's just a real short, quick history of our people there. And then, you know, as time goes on, you know, there's the boarding school era, um, the Indian Removal Act, <clears throat> which took um, people from the from the reservations and just stuck them in various cities. You know, my dad was a part of the boarding school era and also the um, relocation act um, where he was in the boarding school. And I know a lot of people are talking about boarding schools right now, but he was a part of the um, St. Augustine's boarding school where he was sexually abused and abused there. And a lot of the boys were. Um, and then after that, um, he was removed to Los Angeles and just took a bus there and got off and had no idea where he was, you know, anything, you know, and was just given a little bit of money and told here, this is gonna make everything all better, which was all basically, you know, to break us all down and take everything out of us that we were. And it nearly worked, you know, I mean, my dad had trauma and I can remember some of the talks that we've had. And I think that a lot of those talks that he gave me, you know, helped me find where I'm at today. You know, it's just a little 
I, I think of him sometimes and think that, you know, no wonder he was telling me all that stuff. <laughs> um, but that's just a really, really brief history of our tribe and how we got here. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sunshine. I, at one point when you're telling this, I heard you just take a big sigh. Just yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I, you know, being from Minnesota, I've heard the history of Dakota removal to Crow Creek. Mm-hmm. But I think the Ho-Chunk story hasn't been told as much. And, um, you know, there's a long arc there. And I'm wondering how as a director of a museum or just in your personal work, you've had many different roles as a teacher, as a student, <laughs> as a daughter, as a grandma. How do you tell this history? especially in a, in a public setting like a museum, mm-hmm. when it does have such a weight to it, but there also is this remarkable story of, of survivance. I mean, the escape to this part of Nebraska is remarkable. How do you tell that story? It's a very broad um, question. You know, you... I, of course, you know, leave a lot of stuff out, you know, but when people do, we do get a lot of, and all of our visitors are awesome, but, you know, we get some really good questions where people really want to dig in and find out what really happened. And then that's when I, um, I just, you know, tell the honest truth, you know, and there's just, you know, there's no sugarcoating what has happened to any tribes across this country. You know, some are completely eradicated. They're no longer here, you know, and we're fortunate enough to still be here. And I think that I would be doing my ancestors a complete disservice by not sharing that. Mm -hmm. Truth telling, I know Amy Lone Tree, the author, has written a lot about tribal museums. I find her writing to be so interesting. And she says something very similar that just truth telling, that's at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And I admire that work. And I maybe want to dig into that just a little bit more. As part of this truth telling, it seems that there are also, You've talked about language revitalization through Ho-Chunk Renaissance. Um, you've also mentioned to me art classes. There's also this cultural revitalization component. Yes. Those two things woven together because they seem very interrelated to me. Um, they are very interrelated and you can't have one without the other. And I think that for my very minimal language knowledge, you know, because I'm not a fluent speaker, um, you know, just trying to get the language in there. Um, what we would do at Ho Chunk Renaissance is, you know, write the terms on the board, you know, for like a dress as a waje, you know, and just kind of get those terms out there and get people to know that, you know, not only did we do this, make these things, but this is what they were called. So, you know, getting that in there. And um, Ho-Chunk Renaissance also has, you know, their language classes and, you know, no matter how many times I take them or sit in on them, I always learn something new. There's always so much more to learn that we just don't, you know, it's like, like I said, you know, a race against the clock for all of us to try to learn all this and share it um, and be comfortable sharing it, you know, because I know that in some of my work, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant because I 
I always think of myself as a student, um, but I have to get past that hesitancy to, you know, be able to show others that, you know, let's try this, you know, we may mess up, let's, but let's keep going. Because <laughs> it's what our people did. And, you know, I want my grandchildren to, you know, have that opportunity as well and have that knowledge. So yeah. And my little guy speaks as much Ho-Chunk as I do. He probably knows more. And my children do as well. That's wonderful. Bring that all home. Yeah. Yeah. And how does the museum as a physical site work with these programs? Because when I go, I very rarely in the U.S. see Indigenous languages in galleries. I think this is more common, you know, in museums, galleries. Mm -hmm. I know this is more common in Canada. But I'm curious how language kind of comes to life in this space of the, the museum, even if it's sort of behind the scenes in storage or during programs, but how does that intersect with, with the museum? Um, well, see, everything that we have here is labeled in English and our language. Um, we talk about our clans, which are as well English and in our language, which is Ho-Chunk. Um, and then, you know, what little I know, we try to share. Um, I know that they have a passport program going on right now where kids come up, you know, to various programs. And it's all about, we really need to collaborate. You know, if this program's doing something, okay, well, let's throw in some culture and language in there as well, you know, and be open to that throughout our entire community, you know, rather than one program, you know, doing something just English, you know, and, um, then where's the language and the culture component? Because if you look at the bigger picture, it can it can completely be thrown in everywhere, in every aspect of our lives, you know, no matter how little or how much, you know, it's it's all up to us, you know, and we have to work, all of us work together as a community to do this and revitalize the culture, you know, our artwork, um, you know, our language and everything in our, you know, kinship systems, everything, you know, it, it's, it's who we are, you know, to our very core. Well, maybe that's a good point to transition to NEGPRA and <laughs> 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 talking about cultural revitalization, especially through through art, but also dealing with the histories of, of removal and the repatriation of, of human remains of ancestors. So for listeners who aren't familiar with NAGPRA, that stands for the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Um, and this is just some language I've taken from the website that I'll read to you. Um, since 1990, federal law has provided for the repatriation and disposition of certain Native American human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. By enacting NAGPRA, Congress recognized that human remains of any ancestry, quote, must at all times be treated with dignity and respect. So that's a, that's a nutshell summary of <laughs> the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska's uh, tribal historic preservation officer. So I'll, I'll start there and maybe you can tell us what that role looks like because you're a really important person who's actually engaging with federal law to get things repatriated to the tribe. So what does that look like? How does this intersect with some of the, the museum's goals and maybe kind of the 
broader goals of cultural revitalization and of truth telling. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, well, NAGPRA is, like you said, in a very small nutshell. <laughs> it's, um, you know, basically we, um, it requires, you know, federal agencies and other institutions that um, receive federal funds, and that would be like, who all receives federal funds, you know, museums, universities, states, um, even local governments um, to, if they have items, they need to repatriate or, you know, transfer those human remains. Um, and that begins by consulting with tribes and descendants. Um, the This is also like, Part of that is like the protection um, of our people. Um, I, uh, I know it's really hard to explain. Um, protecting and planning um, for the human remains to be brought home, you know, and I know that when people think about human remains, you know, and, you know, however many years ago that was, and, you know, how do we know for sure where that what tribe that person belonged to, you know? So when they consult, then they are reaching out to all tribes that were in that area, you know, or could have been in that area. And then they, we kind of identify ourselves as a um, interested party, um, you know, and it's kind of a long process. It depends on, you know, how many how many tribes are interested, you know, and then we have to do meetings and, you know, talk about it and go through, you know, identifying um, and listing, you know, what all remains they have. And it's not just human remains, you know, it's like funerary objects, um, things that were buried with the person, you know, um, and then getting all those inventories and the summaries and everything from the museums, universities. I know I'm working with a few universities right now. And then the tribes themselves are going to decide, you know, what we want to do with them. And, you know, we want to return them on their journeys back home, you know, before they were disrupted. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we do <laughs> on that part. Um, and then, you know, repatriation, you know, we hear this word a lot in what, what I do on this end. And then it's just, um, the definition is the act or process of restoring or returning someone or something to the country of origin. Um, and then for me, uh, that's what I do. You know, I just, I try to bring our objects home, um, you know, because a lot of the items that are out there were not just human remains or, you know, objects buried with them, but also just our artwork that is out there, you know, and we can't, what, what NAGPRA doesn't reach um, is private collectors, um, which does make me sad, you know, because I know there's a lot of things in private collection, you know, people just have this stuff, you know, and, um, but we've also been fortunate to have some people reach out to us and say, you know, hey, my my grandparent just passed away and we found this and it says it's from your tribe. And I've had those items come home as well. And so, 
you know, I think with this new age, and I always talk about, you know, the younger people coming in and seeing that all this was wrong, you know, that this was wrong, that what happened, you know, that maybe my grandparents should not have this stuff, you know, and then they pass away and then they want to return it. And we really appreciate all the people that do that Mm -hmm. um, across the board because that is where they belong is with us, you know. Mm -hmm. So is that the basis of the Decora Museum's collection? Um, You've mentioned a few repatriations. Are items in the collection also from um, families within the communities? Yes, they're, um, some of them are families within the communities, you know, they've donated some things. Um, and it's not just, you know, artwork, it's like pictures, you know, and newspaper clippings and stuff like that. So we have a wide variety of items. Um, you know, we have dolls, we have our um, beadwork, um, bandolier bags. Um, we just uh, commissioned someone last year for a war club. So that's just a really beautiful um addition to our museum. Um, We have someone commissioned now to do a painting of the Winnebago Navy. And I don't know if you are familiar with that, but that was um, in the 70s, there was um, Sterling Snake, uh, or no, Reuben Snake, um, Louis LaRose, they, and, um, you know, some others. So I don't know if you know where our casino is, but it's on the Iowa side now. But our treaty states that our reservation goes along as far as the river, but because Army Corps of Engineers has basically, unfortunately, you know, did a lot of harm to our river, it only goes one way now, but it used to go, you know, the Missouri River used to be wild and out there, you know, and just kind of like a wetlands here. So we, um, they in the 70s had um, wanted that land back, which is now in Iowa, but they had said that they try to keep us on this side of the Missouri River, but if the if the Army Corps of Engineers had not done what they did to the river, our the river would be way over in Iowa, mm-hmm. and so that's the land that we got back in the '70s. So we actually have someone commissioned to do a painting, um, and they'll be talking to the elders that were alive then, and kind of just I think that's going to be an awesome addition to our our collection here. But you know, and it's not all. Um, repatriated things, you know, we're trying to get our artists, you know, working and keeping them working. And, um, and it's not just painting, people think just art is painting and drawing, you know, it's creating, it's our dresses, it's our beadwork. Um, You know, it's the earrings that I have on, you know, it's, it's my necklaces, you know, the stuff that goes in our hair, you know, everything, shirts, clothing, everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's so cool that those commissions are happening, especially to tell the story of of the Army Corps Army Corps of Engineers destruction of the Missouri River. I mean, they through the dams, they've totally altered the, yeah. course of the river. I didn't realize that in the seventies that the tribe had gotten some of that land back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That well, that's important to commemorate and it's also I've seen commissions I know Henry Pears and artists that you have represented in, in oh the that's Navy. actually the one who we have working on the Winnebago Navy and then oh, cool. okay. yeah yeah and then as a proud aunt that's my nephew <laughs> oh I love it <laughs> I'm just so proud of him he does such great work well and across many different mediums too yes yes he does yeah yeah 
um, you mentioned to me once too that you're doing uh, applique mm-hmm. ribbon work courses. Yes. I, tell us more about that because I just think it's so awesome to have um, art courses affiliated with an institution to kind of show that collections aren't static, you know, that this. Yeah. yeah. They are not static, you know, they're very fluid. If if you can, you know, keep people interested, you know, pulling them into wanting to learn. So we are just actually finishing up our applique classes. So it was applique one, two, and three. And I don't know if you are aware of what our applique looks like. I should have sent some pictures. Um, I'm sorry, I was out of town. So I'm kind of kind of fell back on the pictures I was going to send send you guys. But um, applique is hand-sewn um, designs on dresses and shirts and um, shawls. So we started, applique one was just a small one and it was a pot holder. So we made a pot holder, you know, and getting our stitching down and that type of thing. And we had about 20 participants and they made it all the way through all the classes. Um, the next one was a pillow. So we just hand stitched, you know, a pillowcase and, you know, made a pillow. And then the last one, which is one I'm actually still working on, is the shawl. Um, so our shawl, when you when somebody says shawl, you know, they imagine the fringe just hanging down. But our shawls didn't used to look like that. They just had the ribbon work on them without the fringes hanging. So that's that was our one, two, and three, and um, we had uh, such a great response, you know, of our ladies that were in there, and, you know, we kind of got a group of them in our, um, in like a chat box, and they all just talk about, you know, if somebody has a problem, you know, all the ladies will get in there and help them try to figure it out, and we meet in the evenings, um, which works for all of us, because, you know, we all work, and So it's great. And then so the next one that we have coming up is going to be our clip and fold moccasins, which is basically weaving with fab um, with a type of fabric and then placing that onto the moccasins with a design um, while creating a design. That's so cool. What what is the I'm so curious about the age level of interest. teaching classes and yeah yeah. I right now we have um a lot of I would say 30 30 year old or older um there are um there's another program that's reaching out to up to eight-year-olds and I think that starts next next week and um but like I said earlier you know it takes a community to you know, get all this going and um, have various classes here and there because, I mean, the unfortunate um, part of all this is, you know, how much the supplies cost. So, you know, um, we're fortunate enough to be able to collaborate with Little Priest Tribal College in their community ed program. And then all their um, supplies that we need is bought for them. So that helps people come in as well. And, you know, because I mean, just because, you know, some people can afford it does not mean everybody can. And that shouldn't be, you know, this gate, you know, of learning, you know, like, oh, you can't learn because you can't afford it. No, I don't want it to be like that. I want you to come in and learn and share and do what you can, you know, because 
ultimately we're trying to save our culture, you know, we're trying to save our language and um, you can't let something just as trivial as money get in the way of that. Yeah. So, you that, know, well, we, if we can, we, we, we buy the supplies and if we can't, you know, we figure it out to collaborate with others, you know, and thankfully, you know, a lot of other people see what I see and want to revitalize. And so we try our best to work together and provide these items for our students and get them learning. And then, you know, if you, if you teach somebody, you know, a mother or father, they're going to take that home and they're going to teach their kids. So then it just grows from there, you know, it's planting seeds. Yeah, it's really important work. And I, you know, to bring the conversation kind of back around full circle, I want to talk about sovereignty and whether you see your museum or tribal museums in general as sovereign spaces and what exercising sovereignty looks like in an art context, a historical context, they're of course all kind of interrelated, um, but how the revitalization programs and just this process that you've been talking about how that is or or is not um, an expression of sovereignty? Um, so I think if we, um, I don't know, jump into sovereignty a little bit, you know, it's the discussion about what sovereign is and what a sovereign nation is. So basically how, what I tell my students is that, you know, it's basically a country within a country. <laughs> So all of our tribes, you know, and there's 450 something recognized tribes in the U.S. So those are all little countries throughout the U.S. in, you know, this big country, which is the United States. Um, and a sovereign nation, you know, they, they basically govern themselves. Um, we have our own constitutions um, and we are we have the same powers within our, each of our sovereign nations as, you know, federal and state governments um, to handle our own internal affairs. Um, so that's kind of a little bit about what sovereignty means and as a nation, what it is to our reservations and our tribes. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's a difference between tribal museums and collect, collecting institutions like, you know, the museums that you go to, like in big cities or whatever, you know, those are just, to me, collectors. Mm -hmm. um, there's a purpose of revitalization and finding what was taken from us. Um, and that's, you know, a big part of what I do, you know, finding our items out there and just, and I do a lot of praying about it, you know, and um, that I can find things and bring them home to us. And then for when I bring those items home that was taken from us, um, and there's this beauty in them, um, beauty in our art, you know, and beauty in the fact that, you know, my ancestors touched that, their hands made this item, you know, and, and then, <laughs> Then from that, you know, learning and knowing in our heart, because right now, you know, a lot of us are colonized, you know, and it's sad. Um, but learning and knowing and seeing our artwork and things that our ancestors have made, and then 
realizing that that's my people, my people made that, you know, and that can be me, you know, I'm very capable of doing that, you know, my students are very capable of probably more so than me, you know, than to learn this, you know, children are so quick to learn things faster than us. And that goes, you know, across the board from language to arts, you know, different things. And then they can then be the teachers, you know, after I'm gone. And I think that within the community, the role that we play um, is to, you know, make our tribal members comfortable you know, comfortable asking questions are comfortable learning and wanting to learn with no shame. You know, like I talked about earlier, there's this unfortunate thing that goes throughout all tribes, you know, through the lateral oppression and bullying that, hey, you don't know that, or how do you know, or, you know, you don't, that's not how, you know, my grandma did it, or, you know, just, just that shame that's within our communities. And just pushing that aside and, you know, giving them a safe, safe space to learn, you know, and say, hey, you know, I may not know this, you know, and I can, I always tell them, I don't know, you know, but I will try my best to learn and teach you as well. And we're all learning, you know, and teaching together and learning from each other. And I think that once you get people that, you know, with those same ambitions, that same type of mind frame that we need to push everything aside and just try to revitalize our culture, no matter, you know, forget our egos and, you know, however we may feel um, that we just need to come in. And a lot of our artwork and, you know, my elders tell us is that, you know, we shouldn't be creating if we have bad thoughts, you know, we always have to go in with a good heart, you know, and not, not go in, you know, with bad feelings, you know, and when you're, when you're creating, and I've done this a few times, you know, because I am pretty busy, but you know, when I start, you know, focusing on bad things, or, you know, I'm stressed out about certain some, my art, it comes out in my artwork. So then I have to, you know, start over and, and I, it really gives me, um, gives me the, how do, how do I explain it? Like this, sense that, hey, let go, you know, let go of all that, you know, all that worry and just focus on what I'm trying to create because I want good feelings to come into this because whoever I'm giving this to, I want them to know that, you know, this comes with good feelings and good prayers, you know, to be able to pass on to other people. And so we really try our best to do that um, and teach that as well. It comes out in the art. Yeah, it you does. Know. It does. <laughs> you know, I, you're putting all this work into courses, into storytelling, into truth telling, into your kids, your grandkids, and thinking about the next generations. So, what does your dream? institution look like or tribal museum or revitalization <laughs> program like let's go 20 30 years out what does that look like to you um I think for me like a big part of because we do have a nice building right now but it's just not fitting for what we need um you know as you know you because you work in museums as well um 
we really need something that is going to hold our artifacts safely, you know, like temperature and security wise to make sure that these are these items that I'm holding in this museum right now are are going to be okay, you know, a few, you know, a few generations down the road, you know, as long as they can, because within those all these items that we have, you know, even after I'm gone, people will still be learning from them, you know, and trying to recreate. Mm -hmm. And I would really love to have a space big enough to share our history, you know, because we have a really rich history um, and artistic talents, um, you know, and like I said, it's not just, you know, the simple, um, you know, like it, it's, there was artwork in everything that we did. Um, you know, if you look back on it and just not, along with the art, like if you look at the whole picture, there was science. We had science within it, within our lives and history and in our beliefs, um, you know, and how we used a calendar, you know, and simple things that, you know, we take for granted now where I can just look at a a calendar and know the date and time, you know, but that used to not be that way. That used to be, you know, you looked at the stars and different seasons and, you know, knew what month it was. We used to have 13 months rather than 12 months that we have now. Um, and I, I would really love like having this all together, this big space and enough room for classes that we need. And just, I, I just think that that is where I, my dream museum is anyway, for space and people and classes and just like a big welcoming family, like come in and learn and look at this stuff and try to recreate it and do better, you know, do better and make our ancestors proud, you know, they were nearly eradicated. And, you know, you hold that key to, them and their their past and bringing that all back to life that's beautiful i want this to happen <laughs> you're, you're there i mean the the decor museum is doing so many wonderful things and i i just want to encourage everybody <laughs> who's listening and who's reading this to go visit um because there's just a lot to learn there. Like you said, there's a very rich history, but yes, I could see a much bigger space. <laughs> a much bigger space and I see classrooms upstairs and just like kids and, you know, just people wanting to learn. Like to me, that's, that's what I want. That's what I want for this museum. An active space, a learning space. Yes, an active learning and welcoming safe space, you know, yeah. for anyone, you know, if there was someone who came and say they were part of the relocation at era and they just came home and they wanted to learn all this stuff, I would want them to have a safe space to do that in, you know, without judgment or, you know, someone saying that they ain't doing things right, you know, just because that has happened to me, you know, in my learning path, you know, on my way to where I'm at today. And I still got a ton, ton of learning to do, but, you know, I've, I've had those put downs and it doesn't feel good. You know, it makes you want to quit and like, what am I doing this for? But ultimately we're doing it to save our people. 
you know, that's the bottom line. We need to save our people. Well, that's an important mission statement. <laughs> you put in <laughs> so much hard work. I, you know, just wanted to ask you if there's anything else you want to want to share. Um, um, well, I sent you and Peter a, a little preview of our history video. Um, it's called the Ho-Chunk Nishotachi, the history of the Ho-Chunk Nishotachi. And um, that is entered into the American Indian Film Festival. So we're crossing our fingers with that and just really hoping that we, um, you know, I don't know, we'll see where it goes. But either way, I am so proud of that. Um, uh, my museum curator, Ben Crawford and Garen Coons, we all worked really hard and everyone who um, helped with that video. And it's kind of like, you know, what I talked about, but a little deeper um, on our history and how we came to be where we are today. And um, even just watching the preview earlier before I sent it to you guys, I was getting fired up about it. <laughs> um, and then just the classes that we'll continue to do, you know, we're trying to find more classes, you know, for items that we have in the museum and that aren't really taught. Um, we have to, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough road to find people that are holding that knowledge that are willing to come teach it because that's also a barrier to us. It's people, these knowledge holders, some of them, they are not willing to share or they are just reluctant, you know, because they say they, they don't know enough to share that, but say there's, they're the last one left, you know, if they pass away tomorrow, then that's just gone with them, you know, and it's, it's really tough to get that that um, that idea through um, to see past us, you know, and see past because I, I I'm I'm uh, I, I know you may not be able to tell now, but I am an introvert at heart, and it it takes a lot for me to get up and stand up and you know talk or share my thoughts. You know, I'm kind of an observer, but you know, I I think that there's there's so much important work to be done and so much that needs to be shared in such a little time, you know, that I have to kind of crawl out of my shell too, you know, and be able to share that with everybody and talk to people and try to bring my ancestors home, you know, or try to bring our artifacts home. And so that's what helps me get out of my shell a little bit and, you know, just do the work that I do. Well, thanks for getting out of your shell today. <laughs> thanks for sharing all of this with us. We can add, you know, links to the transcription of this images, send those to us and we'll make sure to share everything. But okay. I just say thank you so much. I look forward to future conversations. And, uh...